Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today we'll be discussing mental health in the legal profession and what our guest refers to as the lawyer zombie apocalypse and how the remote COVID lifestyle may be making that worse. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. We're joined remotely by Professor Peter Wong of Colorado Law. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, Joel. I mentioned it in the introduction, but lawyer zombie apocalypse, what are we talking about here? Yes, Lawyer Zombie Apocalypse was a paper I co-authored, a law review article I co-authored with Corey Lynn Rosen, who was a former colleague at the University of Colorado Law School. She was an undergraduate English major at UCLA. So she really liked the idea of a zombification of lawyers through legal education as a metaphor. And since my partner and niece uh, love Walking Dead, um, I thought if I write an article titled Zombie Lawyer Apocalypse, they may actually read it. <laughs> so this was a PR play? This was just smart branding? I don't know if it was just PR and smart branding. It was certainly trying to frame a problem, with, which is to say that a lot of lawyers feel zombified, right? Feel that they're leading lives where they're just sort of going through the motions. They're a cog in a big machine, especially in big law. And a lot of law students uh, feel that being taught to think like a lawyer, quote unquote, whatever that means, in, in, in part involves emotional detachment and hyper analytical reasoning. And also this idea of not feeling too much, but thinking. Because if you read appellate court opinions, as we do in law school, the judge doesn't care about how your client feels or the other side feels. What the judge cares about is precedent, um, legal argument, analogical reasoning to cases that you want to support your side and maybe policy, but not always. So I think there was this feeling that we're describing a set of problems that are sort of nicely captured by the of legal education zombifying law students. Because there's data, research showing that law students before they come to law school are not any more depressed, anxious, zombified than the general population. In fact, they're slightly above average. But within the first semester of law school, they become anxious, depressed, and zombified. So law school is the the scene of the transformation? Law school is the scene of the transformation. Uh, law firm culture doesn't help, but the seeds, I think, happen in legal education. One of my students said that he was loving the fact that from torts, from the first semester, he was winning every argument with his girlfriend. <laughs> and losing a lot of friends. I said, she's not going to be your girlfriend for long. <laughs> and then other people joke about how you, know, you have a parent who cross-examines uh, their kids or a spouse who cross-examines their spouse. In other words, turning off these lawyer skills and habits of mind or mindsets are often hard to do, right? Because it's really not just a nine to five job. It's a 24 seven job. Sometimes if you're sleeping and you wake up, you know, worrying about uh, a case that you are working on. I mean, this resonates, I think, with many people who will be watching that lawyer mindset. We're looking for problems. I mean, we're generally looking for problems so that we can help our clients to avoid them or to avoid getting excuse the the French screwed over by the other side. Mm -hmm. But 
when we hear details or when we hear a business opportunity, we're immediately looking for potential uh, shortfalls. Absolutely. I think we're taught to look for what can go wrong, what can arise as a problem in, in you know, litigation from the other side's case or in transactional work in terms of the deal. How can we protect ourselves from the other side doing something to take advantage of us? So that mindset, if you care about your personal relationships, I mean, what is my spouse doing to sort of you know take over our joint account? Or what are my kids doing to, uh, as Seinfeld jokes, when you see, when a baby looks up and sees the adult, the baby's thinking, I'm here to replace you. So the idea is you become very much a person who looks for the negative. And like many things, if you look for it, you can find it. And in your writing, you describe how some of this may even be beneficial to lawyers in some ways as someone representing their clients. Perhaps their their paranoia may make them more defensive or their perfectionism may make them stay up and, and get the job done in advance, but it may not help them as a person. Absolutely. So there's, a, there's an article, it's a wonderful title by one of my former colleagues, um, something to the effect of Can Saints Negotiate by Scott Peppett. Um, and the idea is if you're really a compassionate, empathetic, mindful person, are you going to be a zealous advocate? Can you cross-examine the rape victim, making her relive the rape in the name of I'm trying to do the best I can for my client? And so when I had him guest lecture my legal ethics class, students really felt this tension and wanted to say no you don't have to do this. Yes, you can be a caring person, especially in your personal life, and still be a zealous advocate. You don't have to be a jerk. But I do think some people think of lawyers as jerks and think of lawyers as, I'm not good at being a jerk, so I want to hire a jerk for me, like a rent-a-jerk. I'm going to hire the meanest lawyer in town, and we're going to wipe the floor with you. We're going to torch the earth. We're going to, you know, Burn bridges. I know some, I, I know, unfortunately, a couple, both law professors, when they got a divorce, she talked to or hired the best attorney because she didn't want him to hire that person. So, yeah, there is some of that. And that, that, that leads to sometimes trauma by client, right? That you are, in some sense, dealing with a lot of the negative emotions that would otherwise be directed at your client. I mean, in some ways, yeah, if you're describing law as a layer of protection for the client, we're also absorbing some of that emotional harm that would otherwise have gone to them. Absolutely. Ori Ashenfelter, who's an economist at Princeton, wrote an article about the devil's agent or something like people, it was like a prisoner's dilemma game, but it was four parties because they were the clients and their lawyers. And the lawyers were hired, not just for their legal expertise, but in some sense to be emotional um, shields, to, to bear the emotional harm so that the client doesn't have to feel it. The lawyer does the fighting and the client doesn't have to. Well, we'll talk about that a bit, but you mentioned some of the symptoms of the zombie apocalypse, anxiety, depression. You also write about errors or some type of increase in mistakes. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so there is evidence, not so much in the legal context, just decision-making and judgment in general, that people under the visceral force of anxiety or depression are more prone to errors in judgment and decision-making. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. There was a series of Snickers commercials where people were hangry. Because they were hungry, they were angry. You know, we all know you should sleep 
on any decision. You should, you know, eat before you go or buy a car, all these sort of things. We don't follow them. And in some sense, what some lawyers do will try to trigger the emotional strings of the opposing lawyer or client so that you make a rash decision, right? You you react in anger as opposed to uh, reflecting and thinking. I joked with someone that it's too bad Microsoft doesn't have a thought check. So when you write emails- You sure you want to send that? <laughs> exactly. Or write that at all or send us a different version, a more polite. One of my nephews, when he was six, he was acting out. And my partner said, uh, David, you need a timeout. And he goes, I know what I need. I need to go. And he said, hesitate. He goes, we learned about this, this in school. What he meant was meditate. But actually, hesitate captures meditation because it's the pause to take a moment to think about what you need to do. He goes, I'm going to go sit there and hesitate. <laughs> and I thought, this is perfect. Because from the words of kids comes this very kernel of truth that um, we oftentimes react in a knee-jerk fashion as opposed to respond in a thoughtful and mindful way, both to the detriment of ourselves and our client. Well, why don't we talk about the the zombie apocalypse in a in two steps. Let's talk about it first at the law school level. You describe how perhaps most or much of the blame goes onto law schools. I'll push back a little and say, yeah, law school does come with its stress, but doesn't the legal profession, isn't it getting us ready for the even greater levels of stress that we'll face out in the jungle? Yeah, so I hear you. And yes, the legal culture itself is stressful. I actually used to joke and I say to my students, the only way to avoid stress is to be dead, but we don't recommend that. So my partner said to me, how do you know that you have no stress when you're dead? I said, point taken. But I said, certainly you cannot control stress. You cannot predict when it's going to happen. What you can control is how you will respond to the stress. So I think part of it is you are certainly correct that the legal profession is stressful. One difference between law and other professions is the following, and it's, again, not my original insight. When you're practicing law, it's not the same thing as a surgeon because the surgeon doesn't have a surgeon on the other side trying to undo everything the surgeon is doing, right? Often, law is zero-summer competitive by the way it's set up, certainly litigation. All that being said, chronic stress is bad for people. So besides you know, higher levels of cortisol hormone, it impairs decision-making. It can lead to unethical lapses when you're not even aware there's an ethics issue. I tell my students, you know, securities fraud sounds a lot worse than cosmetic accounting, right? How you frame a problem affects whether you see there's an ethical issue. And especially junior associates, they often don't want to upset senior partners, right? I'll just, you know, go along and someone else senior to me will know if this is really a bad thing. I don't really know. I don't want to cause trouble. So I think there's some truth to the fact that we want to prepare our students to be resilient, to understand that stress is going to be a part of their life, but we want to give them tools to manage that stress instead of just saying, I'm going to stress you and it's sink or swim. Professor, so it's not just that law school is a little too brutal. It's that we're not also teaching stress management techniques. We're not giving the opportunity to help law students cope with the stress. Absolutely. I think we should be teaching our students skills to help them be more resilient, to help them be more successful, to manage stress. So I often had a guest speaker, Deborah Austin from the Denver University Com. She's a PhD in education, but she's a self-taught in neuroscience. So she would give a lecture about the neuroscience of stress and to talk about eating well, nutrition, uh, getting a good night's sleep, how to get a good night's sleep, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
And what's wrong with self-medicating through alcohol or through substance abuse? And the students love that lecture. This is legal ethics, where most, most students don't like that class. Most professors don't want to teach that class. And the, cl the classes that were the most interesting for the students thought were the guest lectures, not me. But the guest lectures are people who told about their life experiences in practice and how they developed coping strategies they wish they had learned in law school. As opposed to some of the other coping mechanisms that may work for a short period of time, but then can prove even more destructive. Absolutely. So I think, you know, when people drink, when people use substances, including eating too much, I myself often eat when I'm stressful, hence I'm panda shaped. And so, um, you know, if you ask people why they eat, most people say when I'm hungry. But eating is very emotional. When you're happy, you eat. When you're sad, you eat. When you're bored, you eat. You, you just eat for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. And so just learning that. Like the other day, someone said to me, if you're an alcoholic, you can you know, not have alcohol in your house. But if you're a foodaholic, you can have no food in your house because that's problematic. But you need to have healthy food, right? Once I was, uh, one time my niece saw me, she's now 18 or 20. She's about to be 20. Wow, time flies. She was six and she saw me eat ice cream for breakfast. And she said to me, Uncle Peter, do you understand the concept of nutrition? I said, I understand the concept. <laughs> I just don't apply it. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're willing to admit that you're, you're not perfect in, in every way yourself. I'm not perfect at all, right? But a lot of people are interested in mind, like my, my partner often jokes, she goes, you study mindfulness, you're, you're often not the most mindful person. I said, hence, I'm studying it to get better at it. That's actually very powerful to, to accept as someone who, I, I wish I was doing more meditation personally. Uh, I wish I, was, I had a more robust mindfulness practice. So I, I appreciate hearing that even someone who is an expert uh, also struggles. I, I struggle and I tell my students all the time, it's a practice. If you have one minute, do one minute. If you have three, do three. If you have five, you know, and if you have a regular practice, great. If you miss a day, you'll probably feel like you missed a day of exercise, but just get back on. Don't say I have to wait until next New Year's to set a resolution. Uh, my partner often said to me she was too busy. And then during Grand Rounds, they had someone come in and talk about mindfulness for doctors. It was about medical errors. I think it was some doctor wrote a book called Attending for both attending physician and paying attention. And she said, wow, when we did the mindfulness, just for a minute, I felt much better. And when I saw patients the rest of the day, it was just different. And I said, so now are you going to take up mindfulness? She goes, no, I don't have time. So I see the benefit, but I'm not going to invest in it. Which is, I think, you know, human nature, right? If I could take a pill to learn Spanish, what was that in one of the movies? Matrix. Keanu Reeves goes, now I know Kung Fu because they downloaded into it. Unfortunately, in real life, you have to actually spend time to practice it. So, Peter, it sounds like, you know, one of the main tools that you describe is that you're, you're discussing is mindfulness, is awareness of your own mental state. One thing, you know, one thing that I'd like to, to touch on relatedly is anxiety Young people in America seem to be experiencing high levels of anxiety, at least, or perhaps we're detecting more high levels of anxiety. Are you seeing that at the law school as well? Yes. And I like your point about how it may be an increase of anxiety or maybe better self-reporting or it's more accepted to talk about anxiety. I myself tell my students on the first day of any class, um, just as we're introducing myself, I go... I'm a 32L, or whatever number it is, instead of a 1L, 2L, 3L. 
and I say, I have, and I'm not sure what the word I use is, because I used to say suffered, but I think now I say I have battled or experienced anxiety all my life, partly because my mother was a tiger mom, very perfectionist, and I went to college early. Wait, wait, wait. Went to college early. Maybe we should, we can clarify. You went to Princeton at 14? Went to Princeton at 14. Didn't have a great experience, so I graduated in three years. And went to Harvard at 17 to be a, to pursue my PhD in applied math, to which my mother says she got her PhD in biophysics in three years and had two kids. What's my excuse? I think you've uh, demonstrated your mom's uh, ability to add pressure. Right. She doesn't mean to do that, but I think now she's a tiger grandma. My two brothers have uh, daughters, and she's saying to me, you know, one of your nieces is turning 13. You were already applying for college. She's got to get her act together, get her CV in shape. I said, just let her, let her be. I think there's a lot of pressure oftentimes that's self-imposed, imposed by your parents, imposed by peers, imposed by culture, right? And so my, I remember just a couple weeks ago, my partner emailed me this article about there's a lot more reported anxiety, depression among teenagers today. And there's a th- number of theories. One is Social media is not good for, for for girls, teenage girls, because they're comparing themselves to unrealistic role models, if you will. For others, it's the idea that COVID has made anxiety more common, l- less physical contact with their friends, not being able to get together and see a movie or play sports. Um, another is that parents have become more accommodating so that uh, if if my son or daughter can't eat anything except dry cereal for breakfast, and turkey meatloaf, that's all I serve them. So that way I'm setting them up for not having friends, not being able to date, not going out for meals with coworkers. They would just not be resilient. They're going to be anxious every time the parents are not there, which is going to happen. Or there's another story they told about in the article, a daughter was afraid of dogs. So instead of saying, let's get a cute puppy for you, they defriended everyone who had a dog. That's an extreme accommodation, and it's a short-run solution with long-term consequences. Like you were saying earlier about the self-medication. It's a short-term solution, quick fix, but with big negatives uh, down the road. And I think even though anxiety is more acceptable, I mentioned to my students, most of us who went to law school experienced anxiety on the first day of law school. And I said, I don't know if a lawyer, Gene, if you knew everything, you would need to be here. And I said, it's natural to be anxious. I said, I may seem like a very outgoing person with a funny personality, but I said, I used to rehearse jokes in front of a mirror when I was a teaching assistant for economics. And I said, I'm actually quite shy and introverted. So I said to them, anxiety is natural. The question then is how do we, and, and, and you could actually think of the anxiety as proof to your life. Right. And if you didn't feel anxiety, that would be kind of weird and not a good thing because, yeah. right, just like if you don't feel pain, but that's great. But if I don't feel pain, I'm actually going to hurt myself and not realize I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. Or like people think of stress as a, a negative, but it's there for a reason. If you're being attacked by uh, by someone on the street or if you're you're in a race and you're you see the person sneaking up behind you, that extra stress may help you to achieve. Absolutely. So I think stress can be motivating. Right, it can prepare you to work harder. To, to it's like the fight or flight response. Um, as you say, if you see someone, I thought you were going to say a bear in the savanna, but yeah, if you see someone attack you, I'm I'm here in New York, so my threats are less right. Uh, <laughs> right, right, less bucolic, right. less agrarian. Agrarian. I was giving a talk the next day at UC Hastings on well-being in the legal profession, and so I decided to walk over because there was a dinner, and I thought maybe there's some 
vegetarian food that I can eat there. It's, you know, San Francisco. So as I'm walking the street, there's someone mumbling to themselves. And you don't know because they could be on a, a phone with the headphones. And the guy comes to me and just punches me in the thigh and walks away. And I thought, what was that? So That's it, horrible. You know, it, it's surprising. Yeah. But my point in that story is it kept, it, it made me alert the next couple of days to, you know, and I, and I do think, you know, stress, anxiety can play a role. It's a defensive response physiologically, but it's not stress that's bad. It's chronic stress and it's mismanagement of stress that's bad. That's why I say I'm not blaming law schools. I think law schools believe they're in the business of teaching students to think like lawyers. Although it's strange because if you ask doc medical schools or business, they don't have teaching people to think like doctors or think like business people. They, I'm teaching them to be business people, right? I often joke that we should teach you to think like a lawyer and feel like a lawyer and understand how feeling is important, but somehow undervalued in the legal profession. And also feeling is something it's not considered okay to discuss. Like when, when partners suffer anxiety and commit suicide, that's not something a firm will brag about, right? But but what really I think you know is important is to teach lawyers, law students, um, ways to cope with anxiety, which will happen, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy, um, having friends, just calling someone up to talk to them. Do you know exercise? Yeah, when I, I used I used to uh, I'm injured now, but um, when I wasn't injured, um, I would do we every morning. I would meditate first or do we or vice versa. Do we? Uh, the Wii Nintendo sports. Like like a boxing or a tennis? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I wouldn't do boxing. I would play tennis, golf. What were the other two? Bowling and baseball. And every day I wanted to beat the shape, the score that my pear-shaped avatar had the day before. So very, very motivating, very competitive. And I felt, I felt good afterwards, the serotonin release, right? And the meditation had a similar effect, but it was much more passive or not as active, right? Um, it was fun. And that's the key thing. I think if you make anything fun, people will do it, whether it's, you know, law, blue booking. Oh, now I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I can believe you on that. <laughs> you had me, you had me until, until you said making blue booking fun. I, 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 I tell my students, blue booking, if, if you think of it as a game, sort of, you know, these are the rules and, you know, it's just a citation form, but some people are so obsessive about it. Right. In a way that I find um, amusing. But I, I think anything you can reframe. Well, I mean, in a conversation that we had with another guest, they talked about how you can build meditative strategies into a document review. So, you know, every time you edit something, you take a breath or you uh, you take a moment of pause. Right. I remember. So I watched the interview you did with Natalie Martin, who's a good friend of mine. Um, her book on uh, inside, lawyering from the inside out is great. And she also has a book on yoga for lawyers. So yeah, I agree with you. You, you can say every 10 pages of this document after I you know, redline or whatever, I'll get up and take a moment or I'll take a deep breath or part of it is to get perspective. Part of, like, I, I went to a positive psychology world Congress where during a break, instead of people just um, eating cookies and gorging on snacks, which are not good for them, we did the Macarena. And afterwards, everyone was wide awake and participating. And, and I said to my students. Also, the silliness of it, probably. Yeah, exactly. Or do something like, you know, um, and I said to them, it's too bad when we teach now, maybe in the future, we'll realize we should, you know, be, being sedentary is the new killer, right? Being sedentary. So I said, we should all be teaching you while we're doing, a, we're in a, you know, the thing that you walk on. A treadmill, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and you, can you imagine a, a, a professor's reaction if a student said, no, I'd rather actually stand in the back of the class 
um, because, you know, sitting is the new smoking. Right. Thank you. I was going to try to figure out what the sitting was. It's like orange is the new black. I'm not sure how I feel about it exactly. Mindfulness, I think, is marketed now, and I don't know if that is the right word, but reframed as either increasing productivity or relieving stress. And in some sense, they're related because by relieving stress, you can be more productive. Whereas mindfulness's goal is actually not that. It's to actually perfect your inner self to learn to be more compassionate and loving. But a byproduct of that is emotional intelligence, be more productive. But I'll give you an example. The Army was interested, the U.S. Army was interested in mindfulness for snipers to make them more efficient. But then if you're mindful, you might say, why am I killing people? Is this the best way to resolve a conflict? So I have to think of mindfulness as like a pebble hitting water or in a lake. You can be mindful about yourself, about the ones you love, about strangers, about people who you find to be villains in your life or, or guest characters who are negative, and then about all living creatures, right? Not just humans. Why be a human snob. You know, you can be mindful about Kardashians and Vulcans and plants. So it's concentric circles. But someone said to me, you know, it is disturbing to think about animals being killed. So that's why I don't think about them instead of being vegetarian. So that's one solution. If you're mindless about anything, if I say, oh, racism, sexism, I won't think about it, then not a problem. But if you're mindful about it, then wherever you come, there are people suffering, people being discriminated against. And like you said earlier, sometimes negative feelings are important. Like people feel injustice and angry, that serves a purpose. It's not to say you should never have anger, never have negative emotions. That's a signal. That's information. But you shouldn't be constantly angry, constantly stressed. That chronicness is what's, I think, a problematic. It's not about being happy all the time. It's about experiencing something deeper or, or living in the moment. It's about actually living the moment exactly and experiencing all emotions, positive and negative. And it is not about being happy all the time because sometimes things are not or seem not to be good or happy or positive, but maybe upon retrospection or later on, it will turn out to be positive. We make normative judgments a lot because that's what we like to do. And especially as lawyers and law students, we're in the business of judging, but sometimes you can't tell. And part of that is humility to know that we don't know everything. We don't know why things happen and we don't know why the things are good or bad in the long run. We just know immediately they cause pain or pleasure and want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And that's very short-sighted, right? That's in fact like why people do self-medication. Uh, and that's why the parents avoid fighting kids at bedtime, right? It's a short-term solution with a long-term problem, putting off the problem for the future. A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. The code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. You've also written about loneliness and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. So not only are lawyers trending towards becoming anxious depressed zombies, but we're also quite lonely. And COVID-19 has made that worse in a lot of ways. Maybe you could share some of your insights. And I'd like to talk a little bit about this study that uh, your co-author did on loneliness. So a lot of lawyers um, self-report more loneliness than in the past. And as you said, it could be there is more loneliness or we're picking it up more because we're more willing to talk about it. Certainly, COVID has made all of us, I think, more aware of physical isolation. I think human beings are social creatures by nature. We need human contact. And physical distancing made that more difficult. Although I think Zoom is a great technological device 
innovation for people to have contact virtually. I was talking to someone about uh, on the ABA podcast, asked and answered about how teaching during Zoom, a lot of people complain about it and we were imperfect because we had to pivot to it very quickly. But some students, especially those students who are neurodiverse, who had issues with anxiety, found that being in a little box where they didn't have their classmates all around them, less pressured and found that having breakout rooms that could talk to the professor directly uh, more helpful. So, you know, I know there's a rush to get back to pre-pandemic, but I'm not sure everything has to go back or that the original way it was was the best for everyone. But I agree with you. So one of the first things is to define loneliness. You know, and it's you can be in a room full of people, but it's still very lonely. You can be by yourself with solitude and not feel lonely at all. So part of it is the gap between what you expect or want versus what you have in terms of contact. And it's not the number of friends or frenemies or PFFs you have. It's, you know, if you have a few close friends that you can talk to and that you can share your feelings, I think that's very important. There's evidence that that extends your life and is healthier for you. So Professor, it's not just about connectivity, it's how that interplays with your expectations or your needs. It's not just numbers. It's about the gap between what you expect or need or believe you need and what you actually have. It's that gap, right? So like any time there's a gap, you can either uh, raise the bottom or lower the top. If you have more modest expectations, you might be less lonely. If you say, oh, this is the way it is, right? And so during COVID, I think everyone was more attuned to, you know, without choice, to having less physical contact. I personally actually found COVID, and this is not my phrase, uh, to be a pandemic, many pandemic positives from COVID. One is I didn't have to commute, 20 minutes less, less uh, carbon footprint. I didn't have to deal with traffic. I was able to just sit in my study and work. And like I said, I'm really an introvert, so I didn't mind that. And, and teaching by Zoom was actually less stressful to me than teaching in person. I've heard that that you know introverts rejoice with this new uh, remote lifestyle, yes, so that yes. you know the loneliness may be dispersed unequally. That some you know some may be coping well, and and others, as you describe, it's the expectation, the expectation of regular connectivity with friends in person, then COVID, and that falls out. Absolutely. So I just this morning I saw a study. I think it was an American psychologist. It was a meta-analysis of a number of studies about loneliness and how that changed during COVID. And one of the key things they stress is what you just said, the heterogeneity of the effect of COVID. It's not like everyone felt lonelier and by the same amount. Some people actually rejoiced or were happy to say, I don't feel the pressure I used to feel that I have to go to things because now I've built an excuse. I can't go to a party. I can just sit and work and remotely interact with people I want to and not be forced to interact with people I'd rather not. Whereas other people I think who are gregarious and outgoing by nature found COVID much more distressing, right? So it's not one size fits all. Well, what did your study, uh, what did your study uncover? And, and I say your, I realize it was, it was done, I think by your co-author. Yeah, so Olivia Ash, who's a recent um, uh, law school graduate. So it's her study completely, and it's a study with 57 students, so it's a small sample size. And some of the findings were very much reflective of the general population in terms of demographics. You know, what makes people lonely in terms of age or education? You know, people who are more educated are lonelier. And she found that most students reported, self-reported more loneliness or feelings of loneliness after starting law school than before. Although having study groups and other sort of law students as close contacts 
meant that in the second and third year, the loneliness level decreased. But like other, I think, studies done by a number of people in, in different areas, anxiety, depression, many of these negative emotions increase during law school and never go back down to pre-law school. And you might say it's self-selection, law school selecting anxious, lonely people, but that's not true. A lot of people go into law are extroverts, right? A lot of people go into law actually trying to change the world. It, and before they go to law school, their levels of these things are not lower than the population average. They're actually above. Something in law school happens. And I don't know whether it's the competitive nature. Like some law schools, you know, there's a curve, there's a mandatory mean. Um, they rank students in terms of class rank. We can make law school friendlier without, I think, compromising the rigor. We can make it less stressful without making it less helpful for students, right? There are ways you can um, teach people in a way that meets them where they are and doesn't embarrass people or um, traumatize people. So, yeah, I think sometimes you feel very lonely because you feel like you're the only one having this experience. Professor, we've talked about the the COVID uh, loneliness. We spoke about the lawyer zombie apocalypse, but I also came across an article you wrote discussing pandemic positives. Maybe we could we could leave today on a positive note. Uh, what what were you getting at there? Yeah, I like that. I mean, the article you're referring to is uh, Northwestern Journal of uh, Law, Social Policy. Uh, I think the title is The Good, the Bad, and the Unconscious. Um, and it's about emotions. And at the end of most of my articles, I like to finish on a, on a, a up, up note. Um, so the idea of pandemic positive, again, a phrase that I um, heard from someone, which I thought was just great alliteration, right? Pandemic is horrible. But I think there's certain pandemic positives, and this may be, you know, kind of silver lining on the cloud, trying to trying to find something to learn to look at as positive, right? So one thing I think is that mental health, loneliness, anxiety, depression are things that people are more willing to talk about and acknowledge and say they too have felt loneliness. I don't know if you saw the movie White Men Can't Jump, where at one point uh, Rosie Perez's character says, I'm thirsty, and Woody Harrelson's character says, I'll get you some water. She goes, I don't need you to get me water. I can get my own water. Because why are you telling me you're thirsty? She goes, I want you to say, I too have known thirst. So the idea is that we can be lonely together, if that makes sense, right? That people are more attuned, aware of loneliness is a real issue that many people struggle with. There was a loneliness pandemic before COVID. And, and now people talk about a mental health pandemic um, after or during COVID, right? I think a lot of people are aware that Many people struggle with mental health issues that they don't talk about. In the Chinese culture, it's considered losing face to talk about mental health issues. And so the idea is that we should talk about these and not just talk. We should do something about them. We should spend government resources. Um, putting people in jail is not the answer. It's not a cure. It's not a way to treat mental illness. And so I think that's a positive, right? And I think the other positive is realize we're all in this together. Even though we have many differences, we're all you know, carbon-based life forms. We're all human beings. And we live in a planet where things are interdependent and a pandemic can spread very quickly. And we need to care for our um, fellow inhabitants of this planet that we basically don't own, but are just stewards of. So I think those are three takeaway lessons that are positive or optimistic. Well, on that note, thank you, uh, Professor Wong, for the time and the conversation. Thank you, Joel. It's my pleasure. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. 
Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.